Good morning, ladies. So this uh, senior was driving down the freeway when his cell phone rang, and his, it was his wife. She said, I just heard on the radio that someone's on the freeway going the wrong way. And so really be careful. I, I'm concerned. And he said, you know, it's not just one car. There are hundreds of them. Okay, you got it. Nothing to do with Christmas or <laughs> Okay, well, as we celebrate another Christmas season, I'm always amazed about thinking of the condescension and the humility of Jesus to come, the God of the universe, to enter this world as a helpless infant. It's easy to focus on the infant Jesus this time of year as we see nativity scenes all around us, but we must never forget that he came as that tiny babe to grow up to manhood in order to experience a horrific death on the cross to pay for the death of sinners like us. So as we take a brief look at Psalm 22, we find ourselves at the cross. Many of the words that you read in the gospel accounts of the crucifixion of Jesus were the absolute detailed fulfillment of this Psalm 22 foretold uh, so many thousand years prior, all about the details of Jesus' suffering and death. This passage was written, as I said, long ago, and crucifixion had never even been invented yet as a form of torture and death. So this psalm is just another proof of the uh, inspiration and inerrancy of the Word of God. The Psalm of David is very unique from other Psalms of David, where he shares his own personal experience or struggles or pain. <clears throat> These verses speak nothing of the life of David. Rather, this psalm is exclusively about the suffering of Christ. More specifically, this psalm tells of the anguish of the cross, only in this case it's from Christ's perspective. And it's focus really is on the last three hours of hanging there in agony. From this psalm, we are given a glimpse into what Jesus was thinking while he was on the cross. When we read the gospel accounts, it's like we're a bystander looking at the cross as he dies. But as we read this psalm, this is a view from Christ himself expressing all that's going on in his heart and in his mind in the anguish of the cross. So as we celebrate his birth these next weeks, let's not forget all that he endured here in the study of this psalm to make our salvation possible. So we begin with the agony of the cross, and the first aspect of that agony was being completely rejected by God the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These heart-wrenching words are the cry of one completely abandoned and forsaken by God. These words spoken by Jesus on the cross were towards, as I said, the last three hours of the cross when the land was covered with complete darkness. This was a sign of judgment as Christ was being judged in the place of sinners. He was abandoned by the Father. They had, all, they had spent eternity face to face, perfect fellowship, and now cut off, total abandonment. As Jesus cries out, he doesn't refer to God as his father, which he always did in his ministry and in his prayer life. In this case, this was a different situation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Their spiritual intimacy was broken and gone. Abandoned, orphaned, rejected by the Father. A perfect, holy God had to turn away from God the Son 
Because while Jesus was on the cross, he became sin for his people. He became a sin offering as he died as a substitute sin bearer for everyone who would ever believe in him. He was paying the penalty of spiritual and eternal death. He was experiencing the full weight of God's wrath towards our sin. The sin it's the punishment that we deserved, as you know. And it's clearly explained by Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might be the righteousness of Christ. Jesus never ceased to be holy or sinless. But while he was on the cross, the Father treated him as if he committed every sin that would ever be committed by all who would come to believe in him, though he had done none of them. Christ is crying out to God, even though he knew why he was abandoned. It was a rhetorical question. The truth is, Christ experienced hell on the cross, as he was eternally abandoned by God for those hours. He did this so that all who would come to believe in him would never be abandoned. Sometimes you may feel you're absolutely alone. Sometimes you may feel abandoned. But if we know Christ as our Savior, it's simply not true. It's a feeling, not an accurately based feeling. However, for Jesus, it was more than a feeling. For the first time in all of eternity, he was rejected. He was forsaken. He was completely abandoned. The Holy Spirit, being part of the triune Godhead, was not present to bring comfort to Jesus. He was all Jesus goes on to express, far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. God is completely silent as Jesus cries out to him. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. The daytime would be the reference to the first three hours on the cross when the sun was still shining. Silence. The night, a reference to the last three hours in total darkness. God is still silent. As horrible as the physical torture of crucifixion was, there was nothing as horrible as being forsaken by the Father. He was absolutely alone so that we who believe would never experience silence from God and abandonment. The next verses go on to speak of how faithful God had always been to answer the prayers of his people. He thinks about the fact that God is holy, which means he always does what is right. And as the Lord reflects on the trust that his people praise him because he never abandons or rejects them, rejects them the way that God was doing to Jesus on the cross. No deliverance, only silence. Jesus knows the answers to his own questions. I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. Just like a worthless worm, that's what he compares himself to, bearing the sins of people. That is how... He was treated. Jesus not only lower than the angels here, lower than men. We can't even fathom such misery and agony that he endured as he was slowly, his life was ebbing away from him on the cross. And this is what he endured to save wicked people like you and me. Such love has to be acknowledged by his children. How can we hold back anything in our lives that we think we have to have? when he has lavished such love and sacrifice in our lives. Well, not only was the agony of suffering there uh, from the Father's rejection and abandonment, but Jesus suffered as he was insulted by men in verses 6 through 10. The reproach of men and despised by the people, all who see me sneer at me, they separate with the lip, they wag the head, 
Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, because he delights in him. People viewed him like a worthless lamb of worm, like no value at all. He was frail, and here he was being easily crushed. As Jesus hung on the cross, he endured vicious insults and taunting. The very enemies of Jesus didn't even realize by standing there and doing this, they were fulfilling Psalm 22 here, exactly foretold. These religious leaders had gotten what they so desperately wanted, so why did they even bother to go to the cross and watch him die? Such hatred and animosity in their hearts. The idea of the word sneer means that they made body and facial gestures to show their hatred for him. The expression separate with the lip means they stuck out their tongues at him. To his enemies, he wasn't even a man. He was a worm to squish with your foot. Spurgeon put it this way, pouting, grinning, shaking of the head, thrusting out of the tongue, and other modes of derision were endured by our patient Lord. Men made faces at him before whom angels veiled their face and adore. They also made blasphemous insults to him as they attacked Jesus for his claims to trust his Father. You tell others to trust God, but if you have such great faith, why doesn't he deliver you? Why don't you come down from there and save you? Why doesn't he save you now? Understand that when you are mocked for your faith, Jesus knows exactly what you're going through. The religious leaders hurled their insults as they make faces. They're gloating over their victory at watching him die. While Jesus was abandoned, he never sinned, and his trust was in the Father, and it never wavered. Jesus answered these accusations as he speaks of having trusted God throughout his life. He continues to do so even while being crucified. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. <laughs> Abandoned by the fathers, deserted by his disciples, taunted by Jewish religious leaders, he's also surrounded by Roman soldiers, the ones who put him on the cross. And that is his next aspect of suffering from his enemies, the Roman soldiers. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion. So Jesus here pictures the Roman soldiers who carried out his execution being like strong bulls and vicious lions. They were powerful. These were violent men. You recall from Matthew 27 how the soldiers abused him? They beat him, they mocked him, they made a thorn, and a, a crown of thorns. Uh, when I was in Israel this last time, we, I, I saw them growing from the tree, so it was a great reminder of how readily available it was to go snip it down and make that and push it into his head, and they spit on him, they slapped him, they plucked out his beard. Of course, they did the horrible scourging. In verses 14 and 50, G, 15, Jesus describes how all of his strength is gone. He says, all my bones are out of joint. And that's because after they put the nails in, they hoisted up the beam and then dropped it into the post hole, resulting in all the joints then be completely twisted out of position. His heart is like wax. It's melting like intense heat can melt wax as his life is just ebbing away. His strength is dried up and his tongue cleaves to his mouth. He's experiencing this complete dehydration. And that's why we read in John 19 where he said, I thirst. When his death draws near, Jesus says, and you lay me in the dust of death. He's talking to God, the Father. You lay me in the dust of death. Though it was the cruel Roman soldiers killing him, 
by crucifixion, Jesus says that ultimately it was God who was putting him to death. Men may be killing him, but the Father was responsible for sending him to the grave. Just like Isaiah 53 says, he was smitten by God, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. And you all know very well that that was the quick way to bring death on. They break the bones so they couldn't push themselves up to get their last gasping breath. But when they came to Jesus, he was already dead. So they didn't have to break any bones. And they used, uh, similar to what we would think of as a railroad spike of today, long iron nails driven through hands and feet. 500 centuries earlier, you recall when we studied that the Persians chose um, impaling people as their form of a torturous death. They put them on a big pole up in the air for all to see the going right through them. But now, 500 years later, the Romans have taken the concept and developed it by crucifying people, by nailing them to a cross. Much longer tor uh, torture and agony. He says, I can count on my bones. They look, they stare at me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Victims had all of their clothes removed. They hung completely naked on the cross for all to see. I mean, their goal was totally, total humiliation. The Gospel of John tells us of the fulfillment of this chapter, uh, of, in chapter 19, of the soldiers gambling for uh, sandals, robe, belt, tunic. No wonder Jesus despised the shame of the cross. All dignity stripped away as he hung naked before his enemies, his mother, the other women who were present. Another moving thought from Spurgeon, the first Adam made us all naked, and therefore the second Adam became naked that he might clothe our naked souls. From agony on the cross to triumph. Uh, verse 21, save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen, you answer me. Death is now imminent. And now the tone changes. Jesus is aware of God and his presence, and he's certain God has heard his prayer, and he will deliver him. This is not going to be a deliverance from death. No, but he's going to be raised from the dead. So the closing verses bring praise because the result of the cross is that people are going to be saved for all of eternity. Jewish people, his brethren, will praise God. All of the Jewish disciples will praise God when they see Christ raised from the dead, the 500 people he appears to are praising God, Jewish believers. Jesus uh, had done no wrong, even though he experienced this total abandonment. Jesus was treated this way by the Father because he had to be pierced through for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. He endured all of this, as Hebrews says, for the joy set before him. This psalm closes out as Jesus praises God, not only for all the Jewish followers, from the people of Israel, but for a great assembly that he speaks of that includes Gentiles who will also believe in him. This is the fulfillment to the promise that God made to Abraham that through you, one of your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. One day, Jews and Gentiles will feast with each other and worship the Lord together when that great day of his messianic kingdom comes. Before Jesus dies on the cross, his final thoughts are of a people in the future, a seed in the future, not yet born, who will be saved to serve him. He has performed it. He's accomplished the work. It is finished. He was thinking about you while he hung on the cross. What? Well, 
no wonder we can call him a shepherd. Which brings us to Psalm 23. All that he endured to pay for the price for sinners like you and me should evoke such thankfulness in our hearts. And that brings us to Psalm 23, where David, once a shepherd boy himself, uh, is now going to talk as a Lord's sheep. He's experienced the Lord's tender, merciful care. And if you've come to Christ for salvation, then the truth is he is your shepherd. And what David says in this psalm is true for all sheep who follow their shepherd. This brings such comfort to all who suffer because the shepherd provides for our every need. That's what this psalm is about. In the world of real sheep, they are absolutely dependent on their shepherd to provide everything that they need. They are defenseless. They have no way to fight off a predator. As one person put, their sheep are awkward. They're weak. They're ignorant. They have spindle legs, tiny hooves. They're pitifully slow. They don't even have a growl. And they can't even, their only sure protection for a sheep is the shepherd. They have no sense of direction. They're easily frightened, and they're unable to find food or water for themselves. This is really a picture of us. <laughs> yeah, we are the needy sheep that are so helpless on our own. And we are the ones utterly dependent on the Lord. This beloved psalm presents our divine shepherd who cares about our needs. David had many years to observe real sheep and what they're like while well, he took care of them as a shepherd. And from those experiences, he now begins to write this psalm as a sheep himself, talking about his own shepherd. Notice how David says, the Lord is my shepherd. David speaks from personal experience. He knows what it's like to lie down <coughs> in green pastures and to be led by God to quiet waters. He knows about the valley of darkness. He knows when death threatens. He also knows what it's like to enjoy God's kind, loving care. Jesus declared that he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. He knows his sheep by name. So we look at the Lord is David's shepherd. He says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Literally, the Lord is my shepherd, I will not have need. The name David uses here for the Lord is Yahweh that name for God that is the I am, the all-sufficient one, the self-existing one. God needs nothing because he has everything, and that means he has an inexhaustible supply for all that we need. Sheep raised by priests were often raised for the purpose to kill for sacrifices, but sheep raised generally by shepherds, it was they kept them for life. It was for their, their wool and milk. They lived long lives and were well cared for. They often were like a pet or a part of the family. You know that from the story when Nathan comes to David and he tells that whole parable. It's about this loving pet, you know, lamb that was part of the family. Jesus is the good shepherd who purchased us with his blood and adopted us to his family. And David says he will not have a need because his shepherd supplies his need. His point is to make it clear that since God is his shepherd, he knows he will lack nothing. He needs to live a life that pleases his shepherd. So the rest of the verses of this psalm really reveal the spiritual needs that our shepherd meets for us. First one is he makes me lie down in green pastures. The Lord is the only one who meets our need for rest. Sheep do not lie down and rest very easily. 
They are fearful. They're scared. They refuse to lie down unless they're free of all fear. Free, uh, they have to be free of conflict with other sheep. They can't have annoying flies really bugging them. They can't be hungry, or they won't lie down. Their shepherd gives them peace of mind by freeing them from distractions. And the same as our shepherd makes us to lie down and be able to have rest, he alone gives us that peace. How can we have restful peace in our hearts when there are serious health problems, money problems, marriage struggles, children's struggles, conflicts with people? Every person who has come to faith in Christ has been declared righteous by God. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That happens the moment of salvation. We are no longer at war with our God. He is now at peace with us and we with him. And that is why Jesus said, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We can rest in Jesus because of the salvation he provided on the cross. And yet how many times as believers we are filled with worry and fear and anxiety. This is a failure to believe the truths that are in scripture or to just think about how we're feeling instead of fact. Romans 8, 28 and 29 make it so abundantly clear. Everything God brings into our lives, he takes and uses for good, even if it's not a good thing. He uses it for good and for his glory to glorify Christ. God is developing our character so that we will be more godly, so that we will be more holy, more like him in our actions. In the script, is the scripture true that says, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly? I mean, it's true or it's not true. You believe it or you don't believe it. As you walk by faith, and there's certainly no perfect obedience by anyone, but with a heart that wants to obey, repenting when you blow it, then you can trust him to bring into your life what is good for you. Even sorrow and pain bring spiritual growth and can bring him glory in ways that we can't even imagine. Knowing God is sovereign in what he has allowed in our lives and that he is good and only wise in what he does makes it possible to have rest. When our trust is in his kind heart and in his sovereign goodness, we can have peace even when all hell is breaking loose around us. I read a biography last week while I was away about a young missionary in her early 20s who went with her husband uh, to Dutch New Guinea in the Pacific uh, during the war, late 30s, uh, 1930s, and they found a group of people who had never had contact with anyone outside themselves. Uh, so it was an amazing opportunity uh, to go in and share the gospel with these people. But in the midst of that important ministry, uh, Japan entered the war, and they, within two months, you know, swallowed up so much of the Pacific. And she was taken and spent over four years in a Japanese POW camp, and her husband was taken to another camp, never to be seen again. It was years of unbelievable deprivation and abuse and times of absolute despair and, and suffering, but always, just reading it was encouraged because the Lord always brought scripture to her mind at the lowest point, or a song she memorized when she was a little girl that the Lord just brought to her mind in the worst of moments and times and the darkest of days. The book is entitled Evidence Not Seen. Uh, Darlene Zeibler Rose is the one who, it's worth reading. I just thought of her in light of what this passage is saying. There was rest, there was peace in the midst of hell. 
We experience peace with God the moment of our salvation, and we can experience the peace of God when we really understand who he is and his sovereign plan for our life, that what he says is good, that he is a kind shepherd, that he gives us peace and he gives us rest. And Philippians 4, 4 through 10 would be the New Testament way to implement. Our shepherd also restores our soul. The thought is returning something to its original state, to bring something back. So when David might wander astray like a sheep, he can depend on the Lord returning him to the fold. Having no sense of direction, sheep foolishly wander off from the shepherd. It can just like a little piece of grass, and it keeps leading them off to the next piece of grass. And <laughs> they're, way, they're lost. They're gone. And they're in trouble. And they don't know how to even get back to the flock. They have no sense of direction. So their shepherd has to go after them and bring them back. And we're no different from this sheep that David's presenting, how often we are weak and we wander just like David did from the Lord, thinking, you know, we can get our way back. Think about David's life we studied last year. He strayed from his shepherd when he was with Bathsheba, when he ordered her husband's death, when he was a negligent father, and when he did a census instead of trusting the Lord. David knew all about being a wandering sheep from his shepherd, we wander when we think we know what's best for us. We wander when we think we know the right decision that we're making on our own. How many times troubles comes into our lives because of our wandering? That peace that is mentioned in verse 2 is lost when we're wandering and go astray. But no sheep has to continue to wander. The shepherd brings him back to the fold, back under his care and in fellowship. There must be repentance over our sin, but when we repent, we want to return into that intimate fellowship. And God uses his word, and you saw that in our study of 2 Timothy, all scriptures God breathed, and it's for correction and instruction, for getting us back on track and revealing what's wrong in our hearts. But once we see those sins and confess, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Luke 15 has that wonderful parable about the shepherd who goes off after one sheep who has strayed. And when he finds that sheep, he rejoices, and he carries that sheep home with him. And our shepherd always takes the initiative. He goes after his sheep, and he won't stop pursuing us. He doesn't reject us when he finds us. He doesn't start yelling at us, you stupid sheep. Um, he rejoices, and he carries us home. And this is the merciful shepherd, who is also the loving father, of the, like the, in the prodigal story. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. And when we get off track, what an amazing shepherd who provides for his sheep so that we get back on the right path, using his word to restore you and to keep you from straying again. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He wants his own to, to glorify him by obeying him. So if you're in a wandering place, and that doesn't mean huge, you could just be wandering in little areas he's already dealt with you on. Um, you just need to come back and repent and make sure you end your self-sufficiency and get back walking next to your shepherd. And the shepherd gives protection. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. You are with me. Certainly this verse is one that we, it's almost every funeral or the little paper about someone's passing. This is a psalm that seems to always be on it. But these words are also to help those who are alive, who are facing dangers, including the possibility of death. The valley of the shadow of death has the thought of darkness. It's actually more 
accurately translated the darkest valley or the valley of deep darkness. As sheep were, were moved from one grazing place to another, they often had to go through very narrow canyons or, or valleys and cliffs where the sun didn't shine in. So it was really dark and shadowy and hard to see danger. The point David is making is that even though sheep faced dangers as they traveled through deep darkness, where death could be possible, they don't have to be afraid because their shepherd is there to protect them. Every one of us here, is know what, every one of us here knows what it's like to be afraid. We have all experienced a dark valley, whether it's in the loss of a loved one, betrayal by a friend, divorce, a, a wayward child, somebody else's death, or another crisis. Whatever is a dark place in your life, that's the valley of darkness. And the temptation in the valley is to be afraid. Those places of uncertainty and danger can threaten our peace and just fill us full of fear. Notice David, sa David says, even though I walk through the valley, following the Lord often does take us through very shadowy, dark places and experiences. His will doesn't always leave us to a happy mountaintop, and if it does, you know you're not there very long. <laughs> His will leads us into valleys, into shadowy places, through dark days of painful experiences. But David says that even though I may walk through those very dark valleys that are filled with danger, I am not afraid. Why? Because his shepherd is with him. He never walks alone. I love that song, Never Once Have I Ever Walked Alone. Everything about the shepherd so far has been, he makes me lie down. He leads me. He restores my soul. But now David speaks in his prayer and says, you are with me. No matter the danger or the fearful situation we may have to walk through in this life, he is right beside us, so close that we don't have to fear evil. The shepherd is not way ahead of us saying, come on, you dragon. No, he's very close to us, so he protects us from any harm. What a comfort to believe what David said to the shepherd. You are with me. The sheep have poor vision. And walking through a canyon, we have the added difficulty of darkness, making it even harder for them to see. But their shepherd was right there with them. So close to them that they know they're protected. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And that's what Jesus has done for us. As a believer, he still protects us, and he will see us through the most shadowy, dark valley. We just saw what he endured on the cross. We see his love. That love that he has for you makes it impossible. He will never desert you. He will never abandon you. That's why he withstood it. And when you're singing this Christmas about Emmanuel, remember, you know it means God with us. Think about this. This is God with us walking through. There are many times we may not feel his presence, and we can't see what he's doing at all. But we can still trust God to bring us through any furnace of trial, refining us like pure gold in the process. I close our time heaven falling way short of covering so many verses. But if you want an in-depth study of the rest of this Psalm 23 and the next one, 24, I encourage you to go to the website here at Lakeside where messages are in far greater detail of all of these passages. I'm grateful for the diligent study my husband did preaching through all of these Psalms. And uh, his notes have been my help for today. <laughs> <laughs> As Jerry Bidger said in his book, Trusting God, Even When Life Hurts, he said, For many years of coming to a place of trusting God at all times, I was a prisoner 
to my feelings. I mistakenly thought I could not trust God unless I felt like trusting him, which I almost never did in times of adversity. Now I'm still learning that trusting God is first of all a matter of the will. And it's not dependent on my feelings. I choose to trust God. My feelings eventually follow. May you, like David, know his peace because you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that, as he said to his shepherd, you are with me. Emmanuel, God with us. Rely on the promise that God is with you. Choose to believe the truth and be set free from the fear that you have as you walk through your last hour. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these amazing words that you've given us in Scripture. Just being able to see what it was for you on the cross brings such comfort and hope and such uh, loyalty and thankfulness and love that you would do that for us. And then that you would shepherd us and walk through this life and sovereignly orchestrate every detail of our life being a good, kind, wise God, I pray, Lord, that you would help each one of us here to really believe what we believe and to really trust you and recall as we celebrate Christmas that you not just came as a baby, but you died to that horrible death for our salvation and you are our loving shepherd. Help us to remember that you are indeed with us. In Jesus' name. Amen.